Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple Hour again this morning. Uh, we've got an hour of science for you now, and I'd love to say in the studio with me, but of course they're not in the studio. They're all joining me via Zoom. I've got Chris KP. Good morning. G'day, mate. How are you? Good I'm to good. Know you. I'm good. You look like you're outside in the field somewhere. Uh, I would be, but it's a bit bleak out there, to be honest. It's a bit grey, but I'm looking out at it, and that's all that matters. It is bleak. We've got Dr. Jen. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. You well? It's, uh, yeah, I am well. Well, you know, like I get to eat chocolate today more than I would otherwise. So of course I'm well. <laughs> I think everyone's consumption's gone up in the last few weeks. Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine, mate. I'm in the studio all by my lonesome. It's a glorious place to be, Triple R. It's one of the only adventures I, I have left. Like most people um, who probably only get to go to the supermarket, I also get to come to Triple R, which is I feel yeah. extra special. Um, I'm but- just coming out of my hot crust bun uh, coma. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, across the board, I would say my consumption has gone up. That yeah. includes yeah. Netflix, alcohol, I'm, food, sleep, I'm glad, everything. I'm glad we didn't do before photos before ISO because uh, the, after photos might, <laughs> the after photos might not be pretty. <laughs> One of the things I love is that people are all using these <laughs> fake Zoom backgrounds in their video meetings. People are soon going to be, they won't care about the background. They'll be using fake avatars of themselves from three months ago <laughs> yes. so as not yes. to scare their friends. But Shane, how cool is it that you get to go to Triple R and that's deemed essential? I, I mean, know, I know. Awesome. I feel I, I almost want to be pulled over by the police. And when they say, what are you doing out? And I, I won't say I'm going to, to, to the supermarket. I'll say, I'm going somewhere very important. I'm going to Triple R. It's April Amnesty. People, get on board. Anyway. If you, don't, if, you, if, you, if you say that you don't get a police escort, there's something wrong. You'd think. You'd think. <laughs> Especially the way I drive. Anyway, let's jump into some science. We have three huge guests coming up uh, in not long. So we're going to get some science out from you guys first before I kick you all out of the studio. That's the way we do it these days. Dr. Jen, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I want to talk about Neanderthals. Cool. Because they're just cool, right? They used to get such a bad rap. Everyone used to consider them to be, you know, a very poor example of a, of an early human. But, in fact, they've got all these skills. We now know that they produce cave art and um, shell beads and stone tools and, you know, they were really good hunters and all that sort of stuff. And this week another pretty cool piece of news came out and that is that they know how they knew how to make fibres. And, you know, you can sit there and go, oh, yes, string. Gee, Dr. Jen, how cool, string. But in actual fact, making string is actually more complicated than you might think. And until this week, we thought the oldest piece of string was 19,000 years old. But this new little tiny fragment of string, it's only six millimetres long, and it was found under a piece of a stone tool um, that was excavated from an archaeological site in southeastern France. And it was found in a layer that's about three metres below the surface, but that equates to somewhere between 52,000 and 41,000 years ago. So a hell of a lot older than 19,000 years. And they found this little fragment of cord. And 
it's actually very, very impressive because to make this cord, it wasn't just taking a few pieces of fibre and twisting them around. It's actually a proper three-strand cord. So basically they got fibres from the bark of a conifer tree and twisted them counterclockwise to get what's called an S-twist and then got another one and another one and then twisted them all together and all of this twisting and retwisting, that's kind of what gives you, you know, tensile strength in a piece of string. Um, and, yeah, there's this evidence that Neanderthals up to 50,000 years ago were making three-ply cord, which could have been used for nets or mats or baskets or, you know, I think it's pretty amazing. It's a long time ago. Well, we better hope we've all got some of those genes left in us because as our hair grows, we're going to need something yeah. to do. <laughs> and more and more people are going to be sitting there plaiting it like, like Neanderthals did 50,000 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. But one of my favourite parts of this research was, you know, they did an interview with one of the um, lead researchers and he basically had come out and said, so this shows that, that Neanderthals were incredibly smart. And, you know, in papers they always get someone else to put in a comment and this other person said, well, look, I don't know that it shows they were that smart. You don't have to have really strong numeracy skills to be able to count to three. <laughs> the, lead, the lead researcher came back with this really fantastic quote. His quote is, I'm not saying that they were geniuses. I'm just saying that they weren't morons. <laughs> <laughs> like Don't you. Yeah, 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 like you. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I think great. it's impressive, right? Like I wouldn't know how to make good quality strong string without a bit of thinking. So. No, I mean, then you know, one moment you got string, next minute you got yourself a sailboat. You know, exactly. it's, yeah, it's not like a big reach. It's not a big reach. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jen. I love hearing more and more about these guys because we, we've all got a little bit in us, as I suspect we, uh, we're we aware of now. Some but, more than um, others. Some more than others. Uh, good segue. Chris KP. <laughs> yes, I think I'm one of the um, uh, not officially a moron um, Neanderthals. <laughs> I've, I've got those genes. Um, or at least it's difficult to tell that I'm a moron anyway. Um, so look, I want uh, to sorry, what you that. think? <laughs> I am speaking for myself. Of course, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, good heavens! Um, so I, uh, I want to talk about rhinoceros, uh, and I'm still unsure, as I say it, whether the plural is rhinoceroses or rhinoceri or just rhinoceros. Um, and I, I'm, and for, for listeners, I'm looking at a Zoom screen at two ecologists who are shaking their heads at me. So thanks for <laughs> your support. the second option, I reckon. Rhinoceri? No, no, rhinoceroses. I reckon. Oh, yeah. okay. Let's just call him Rhino because no. I'm running out of syllables. Ewan doesn't really know. He's taken it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the bottom line is, actually, if we, uh, people people who have been using uh, video conferencing would know the look on someone's face when they're Googling something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Jen's got it right now. L let me know what you find, mate. <laughs> no, um, I don't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I can if you want me to. Hang on. You keep talking, Chris. I'll get right back to you. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> oh, this is smooth as silk. Um, so uh, suffice to say, the, 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 the study that I wanted to to mention today is actually from a few different places, including um, a researcher at Victoria University here in Melbourne um, and, and others in the US and in, uh, in New Zealand and, uh, and South Africa. What they found, if you ever, if you picture the last time you saw a doco with rhinos in it, there's, you know, rhinos wandering out there somewhere in the African savannah and there's probably a couple of birds sitting in on their back. The, these birds, which are called oxpeckers, are called oxpeckers because they peck, um, specifically they peck at ticks and, and various, you know, lesions and whatever on the back of the rhino, which gives them food. So it's in their interest to have rhino, right? Because it's a source of at least food, if not uh, anything else. Um, but it turns out that they don't just pick the nasties off the back of the rhinos, they actually provide them with a security service. Uh, so what these, what these researchers found is that they spent 27 months 
Um, and on 86 occasions, they snuck up on rhinos, which, you know, for those of you who are uncertain, is not a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because if the rhino finds out you're there, they're not a happy animal. They'll, they'll give you a hard time. Having said that, they have incredibly crappy eyesight. If they smell you, um, you're, in, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. Um, but they, they can't see very well. Well, it turns out that oxpeckers have much better eyesight. And when they see something that freaks them out, they make a hell of a lot of noise too. So essentially, these rhinos are carrying around an alarm system. So if they see the people approaching, then they start freaking out. The rhinos go, what's going on? Um, and uh, and turn to they turn to face downwind. Now, this is the interesting thing. Their, their eyesight is so awful that they don't even bother pretending they're going to face the danger because <laughs> they don't know where that is. But they will face downwind and give themselves a chance of picking up a scent. Uh, what's really cool about this, I thought, um, so it, it basically massively increased um, the, both the likelihood of a person being detected and also the distance uh, at which they were being detected was a hell of a lot further away as well. They were seen from a lot further off. But the really nice thing is that every additional oxpecker that was on the rhino improved the detection distance by nine metres. So having one oxpecker, that's okay. Having three or four, yeah, now, now you you're go. talking. How good is that? I reckon that's just the coolest thing. I wouldn't mind getting some of these birds just near the house. It'd yeah. be very convenient, wouldn't it? Forget these alarm <laughs> systems and stuff. Just have a couple of these birds on your front door every day. You're just going to lay the right kind of, um, of invertebrates around the house for them to feed on. You know, look out for you. That'd be good. I, I just have to interrupt with my yes. uh, Google search results. Yes, thank you. Rhinoceroses is okay. Rhinoceros Good. is okay. Rhinocery is okay. Rhinocery. And, and archaically, apparently, they were rhinocerotes. Rhinocerotes. Or I don't mind that at all. However, Chris, you prefer to pronounce it. I think yeah, we'll just go with the Australian version. Rhinos. Yeah, I think we'll just go rhinos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. All right, Doctor Ewan, what do you got for us? We are monkeys. We are sailing. Sorry, folks, we're having some technical difficulties. To Peru. (laughs) Oh, this is so much better than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. So, uh, this story comes from science, and sorry, apologies to all the listeners for that. Had to endure that me singing, but uh, so this is a discovery of four teeth in Peru, and it's pretty pretty awesome story, I think. So basically. Um, obviously, monkeys got across uh, from Africa at some point and, and invaded the New World, and we have monkeys, of course, in South America and so forth. And it's happened in the past, but what they found recently was four teeth in Peru, which indicate that it's happened uh, previously about 30, 32 million years ago. Now, you might think, yeah, okay, a bunch of monkeys got to South America, but how the hell did they get to South America so long ago? And it turns out they probably rafted, okay? Now, you're talking about you know, how clever Neanderthals are spinning some rope and all that kind of stuff, right? These things obviously got on a raft at some point and the, the distance the distance was about 2,000 kilometres, right? So imagine being stuck on a raft for 2,000 kilometres and getting to the other side and managing to survive that and then establish a population. I think that's just, it's remarkable, right? Like, I mean, mm. so they, interestingly in, in, the, in, the, in the article they say, um, you know, it was closer. <laughs> so in the in, uh, now it's about two thousand seven hundred kilometres. Mm. I'm like, 
2,000 kilometres is still a long way mm. yeah. on a raft with not much to eat, presumably. Well, pack um, lunch. There'd have to be a pack yeah, lunch. Yeah, so they, they, they talk about being on a, on, a, on a land raft and maybe there were some trees and stuff and some fruit, but it would be some pretty good fruit to survive. How, how long do you reckon it would have taken them? Well, that's what I want to know. I just think, you know, okay, so there's so much against them, right? So they're on a raft. They've got to have enough food. They've got to get across fast enough without getting, you know, pummeled by a wave or whatever and knocked off. Mm. Then, and then when they get there, they've got to hope that their genetics is, you know, half decent that they can establish a population, right? Which obviously it did because they went extinct, but they were there and obviously the, long and enough the, to, to leave. And whenever they, yeah, and wherever they get to, wherever they're going to, they want to hope there isn't a bunch of predators there with an Uber Eats account. It's just, um, it's an amazing tale of survival. And they, and they basically argue in the paper that there's no way they could have gone around a long way because if that had, had mm. happened, you would have found teeth at, at least along, some way along, yeah. a, along in a cave yeah, deposit yeah. or whatever, and they didn't find any of those. It's and incredible. these teeth are, are most similar to um, an extinct uh, genus of uh, monkey in, uh, in the Egypt area. And you can tell they're molars and they're very distinctive shapes. So the thing about teeth in fossil deposits is that teeth are really, really distinctive as opposed to other mm-hmm. bones and so forth. So they're pretty confident that it's from this, this lineage um, from Africa, which is just... It, my mind bends. Yeah. yeah. How, mm. how does a group of monkeys get 2,000 kilometres across the ocean? If you if you told me that they'd been picked up, presumably yeah. by a hurricane, and swept across the sea and yeah. dumped somewhere else, that's almost it's, more believable. Yeah, <laughs> it's raining monkeys. <laughs> it's it yeah, it's yeah. incredible. So it's, it's a remarkable story of survival, if nothing else. But uh, yeah. yeah. I wonder how many monkeys got eaten on the way. Yeah, presumably quite a few, and presumably this happens quite regularly. And in fact, it still happens today that rafting occurs, and presumably most of them do meet their fate rather than actually make it to the other side. But uh, yeah, hats off to the ones that did. It's so, fine oh. stuff. It's fine stuff. Well, guys, I'm going to have to uh, move on to a music break. We have our first guest coming up in just a few moments. Uh, but it's great to see all three of you in your various fake locations. I know you're all just sitting in your bedrooms <laughs> wearing gym jams, but um, the backgrounds <laughs> look... Speak for yourself, Shane. <laughs> hey, I'm out. You can't... I'm, I'm out. This is the first time I've wore pants in two weeks. Um, oh, you know, it's, a, it's a big... We didn't need to know that, mate. Happy Easter. <laughs> <laughs> I think the... I think I find bizarre's uh, this morning I was told that uh, our hands are much cleaner, but the rest of our bodies probably are not for most people. <laughs> 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 We've inverted our, our hygiene. Anyway, it's all good. Thanks so much, guys. It's good to chat Have to you. And we'll, uh, we'll chat again very, very Here's soon. Going. All right, guys. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We are going to take a, a short break as I get our first guest on in just a moment. Uh, that will be the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University, and we're going to be talking about what's going on um, at the university there and what universities do in this time of pandemic. So give us a minute, and we'll get uh, back to that in just a, a tick after this uh, nice piece of music, hopefully. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. On our most recent Zoom call now into the station, I have Professor John Dewar. He's the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University here in Melbourne, Australia. John, welcome back. It's been about 10 years, I think, since we've had you on the show. It has, Shane. It's great to be back. Now, uh, different times, of course, although I think the last time we were uh, in the middle of some disaster at a different university, but you're, um, you're the Vice-Chancellor at La Trobe. Um, for those of uh, our listeners who are outside of um, Australia, and we have a few, just tell us a little bit about La Trobe as a university. Uh, La Trobe is um, a medium-sized university in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. 
Um, we have about 37,000 students. That sounds big to a lot of people, but actually by Australian standards, we're mid-size. Um, we were the third university in Victoria, the state of Victoria. And in fact, the last uh, of the universities that was actually founded as a university. So I think that makes us a little bit special. Uh, we just turned 50 a couple of years ago. Um, and we now have a big regional footprint throughout um, central and northern Victoria. So we have campuses that stretch from Collins Street in Melbourne up to Mildura and Wodonga, uh, close to the New South Wales border. So we have a very big footprint. Um, we pride ourselves on being uh, both globally recognised for research, in, particularly in areas like um, biochemistry and agriculture and so on. Um, but we're also one of the country's most inclusive universities. We take more students from low socioeconomic mm. backgrounds um, uh, or who are first in their family to come to university than almost any other university in the country. So we're, I think, a unique and I think institution. Mm. Now, give us a bit about the um, how the pandemic is pandemic is affecting the university because we, we hear a lot about, you know, close downs of various companies and so forth. But um, a university has so many sort of tendrils into society and, and does so many different things. I mean, it's not just about degrees or just about research. So talk us through that. I mean, what, what's happening at La Trobe and, and what sort of things have you put in place to, I guess, keep the, keep the place running? Well, our, our primary focus has been our students um, because it's really important that the pandemic does not affect as far as, far as we can ensure it, that it doesn't affect their studies. Um, so probably the most significant thing we've done, and as have all universities, is to migrate their teaching to online. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about it, that I mean, if you go to our campus today, it's almost deserted. What, what was a bustling um, place filled with 27,000 students in the case of our Bandura campus, um, has has become almost a ghost town. Um, and what that tells us is just how quickly universities have changed the way they do things, really changed their core business in a matter of days. Astonishing. And I am in awe of our staff who have really gone above and beyond to make sure that students get as good an experience as possible. Um, and the way in which we've extended or expanded our digital capability to scale up to do something like this within a matter of days is just huge. Mm. Um, and yet we and many other universities seem to have done it pretty well. So that that's the most important thing. But you're right, Shane, universities are communities that um, have different assets. So you know, we have students living on campus, and we still do because a lot of them don't have anywhere else to go. For them, the campus is their home and their only safe environment. So that's important. Um, it's also obviously a major uh, research house. Um, and to decide, we had to activities research and continue and which can't. Um, we're also home to a lot of small businesses, um, particularly the small traders who uh, supply coffee and food to our students mm. and staff, very important. Um, but also we have a lot of businesses co-located with us on our campus. So you're right, we, we do uh, stretch or, or reach into lots of different areas. Our sporting facilities, for example, we've had to close those down, which is a massive shame because 
they're very heavily used by the local community and by staff. So we, it's been an incredibly complex period where we've had to make really decisions about to do with particular parts of the university. Um, but I, I just cannot praise my staff more highly for the way in which they have gone about this and their absolute commitment to the welfare of our students. Yeah. John, just um, sort of pivoting a bit off that, I, I recall reading something some time ago about the university offering up some of its accommodation during the bushfire crisis, sort of, um, which seems like so far in the in the rear mirror now, you know, but it was just a, a couple of months ago that we were all just, you know, devastated and, and not knowing how to deal with that. I mean, what, what did Latrobe do at that point? Because I think it's it's important that we remember some of these things. Um, they were only a couple yeah. of months ago. Yeah. So during the bushfires, we uh, offered our accommodation at our Wodonga campus, which was probably the closest of our campuses to where the bushfires were. Um, for the police and for some of the visiting American firefighters. They stayed there mm. for about three or four weeks. So we were delighted to be able to help in that way. And universities are doing the same during this uh, yep. pandemic. Um, so in our case, we have made available all of our PPE equipment um, to our partner health providers. Um, we have a teaching ward at our Bendigo campus that we've just made available to Bendigo Health uh, in case they need it. Um, our students, as far as possible, remain on places, and so they're not on the front line. They will be providing important backup to the front line health workers. Um, and a lot of our students end up being uh, drafted into the, what's called the surge health workforce. So um, students helping, uh, not as volunteers, but as paid members of the health workforce um, to uh, help fight the virus and to back up. Frontline workers. Mm. So at times like this, universities actually have a huge amount to contribute, um, as well as through the research. So, I mean, we, we know, because you've probably seen the media reports, that the University of Queensland um, and Peter Dutty Institute of Melbourne Uni are working on a vaccine. And many other researchers, including at Latrobe, are working on the best way of delivering a vaccine once it's been, once it's been identified. Um, so I think it's university-based research that in the long run provides the best hope for finding a cure to this to this virus and getting us out of this. Mm. I think, yeah, very important point there, John. I think um, we, you know, we'll hopefully see some of the some of the investment that's been put in for so many years actually into some of these great organizations that you mentioned with regards to this research and this will probably you know pay off for us in in a major way in terms of your researchers how are they i mean how are they coping with this change because i can imagine there would be a lot of them where being off campus means not doing their research full stop yes so particularly in the sciences shane um where researchers are doing lab-based research. Um, and of course, if their lab is closed, um, then there's not much they, they can do. Some researchers don't in the humanities and social sciences, but lab-based researchers are really stymied if their lab has to close. And that, that's why it's been a difficult decision knowing where to draw the line about what can continue and what, what can't. Um, we've, it means that we've had to talk to all of the funding bodies whether it's the ARC or the NMRC, uh, about you know what can we do to extend the period of funding for a particular project? 
Um, so it's incredibly complicated. And again, our, our, in our case, our research office has literally had to work through research project by research project to ensure that, so far as possible, the, the money the money remains secure. Yeah. In in terms of the research, is there a possibility as we start to come out of this is one of the things I haven't seen a lot of is sort of staggering of researchers back into the lab. So, you know, like I go in for the odd numbered weeks and you go in for the even numbered weeks and things like that. It seems as though we've gone from everyone there to no one there, but it, it, it feels like we should stagger things back in in a more controlled way that gets people some time rather than no time. Yeah. Look, that, that is a possibility. Um, as, as social distancing restrictions start to relax, we will certainly be looking at sort of team A, team B type arrangements. I should say that some of our researchers who are working on COVID-19 related research are still on campus right. working in their labs. Um, we thought it was important that they be given absolute priority um, to continue their work. And I'm sure that's the case at other universities as well. Um, but no, you're right. once, once we're allowed to um, start relaxing a bit, um, we, we will be looking very carefully at how we might do that. And yeah. alternate days or alternate weeks could be a could be a way of doing it. Yeah. And what's the, uh, just before you go, what's the life of a vice chancellor like uh, at home, not seeing a single member of the entire, you know, 37,000 odd strong university community? Uh, I miss them. I miss them really <laughs> terribly. Although I'm seeing people, I'm seeing people a lot on Zoom, as you can imagine. Yep. Um, and we have ensured that each member, there is every day a member of our senior team on campus because we have about 100 um, essential staff who are still on campus and it's important that they don't feel abandoned. Um, so there's at least one member of my senior team, including me, on campus at least one every day. So I'll, I'm taking my turn in that. Um, otherwise, no, you're right. It's working from home and, and just sitting a lot in front of the computer. Mm. Like everyone else, I suspect. Um, but I can't, I can't tell you how much I miss our campus, our students um, and staff and just being able to wander around and talk to people. That, that's that's probably the hardest bit for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not having that casual interaction on, on campus and seeing people. Yeah, it's a big change. I think it's one that... Uh hopefully uh, won't be for you know beyond the end of this year but realistically we're going to be stuck in this for a little while aren't we um potentially um i, I feel particularly for our international students mm. um who i think are being badly treated by the government actually um a lot of them i mean the prime minister told them to go home um but a lot of them can't go home because their countries have closed their borders to all international travelers and there are no flights often to these mm. countries. And these students are, are qu quite desperate. And that's why a lot of universities have set up um, significant student support funds, um, including us, um, to try and help them as best we can. Um, but when we, when we come back up to China, it's going to be a very different sector. Um, it's going to be much smaller because um, those international students won't be hurrying back quickly. Mm. Uh, for a whole range of reasons, not least the fact that they won't feel Australia has 
done the right thing by them. I think it'll be a very interesting test of many institutions when we look at how much we've relied on that fee income from international students and how well we treat them now that it's them that yeah. are in great need from us. And uh, it's good to hear Latrobe is doing this, but um, it's certainly going to be a big test for all universities in Australia as to how they step up, I assume. Well, the, the longer-term implications of this are profound um, because you're right, the university sector has necessarily come to rely on international student mm. income particularly for the funding of research and capital infrastructure. Um, we know that Australian government funding does not cover the full cost of research, and universities receive no funding from the federal government at the moment for any capital infrastructure. Mm. Um, there's been a tacit deal, if you like, for the last 20 or 30 years between the university sector and successive governments, and it's not one side or other that's particularly responsible for this, um, which has seen universities subsidize their capital needs, their research needs, by taking international students. Um, now, if that's going to no longer be the case, and I don't think it will be for at least five years, there is a major reset on the mm, way. Yeah. Well, things are going to change. A lot of things are changing. Um, it's good to see that Latrobe is, you know, bunkered down, but sounds like doing well under your good leadership uh, during this time of pandemic. Good luck, John. I hope, um, I hope you... Uh, managed to score a few of those walks on campus to keep the uh, people company. I suspect as Vice-Chancellor, you can kind of uh, make sure you get your fair share because that sounds like the only, the only way out at the moment. Indeed. No, thanks very much, Shane. I really appreciate your interest in this. Thank you. No problems. Great talking to you. That's uh, Professor John Dewar, the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back uh, with a bit more research in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We are broadcasting as normal. And on the line, we now have Dr. Holly Barker. She is a senior postdoc at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Holly, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Look, it's great to talk to you. Um, I think we, we probably set up this interview long before things went a bit nuts, um, and we're hoping to have you in the studio, but this is just as good. Now, you're working in the area of rare cancers. Before we get into the specific work you're doing, can you just give us a little bit on how we define rare cancers and how big a problem they are? Yeah, sure. So we currently define rare cancers as those that affect uh, less than six people in 100,000 people in the population each year. Um, so although they're rare, when you collectively put them all together, all the rare cancers together, they actually account for about a quarter of cancer diagnosis and about a third of all cancer deaths each year. So they're a huge problem. And that's that's basically pu uh, due to there not being evidence-based treatment options mm. and that's due to there being a lack of funding for these rare cancers. Okay. And in terms of the, the sort of types of cancers, are we talking about rare in terms of where it affects the body or rare as a subset of other, other cancers? So is it like a rare form of you know, lung cancer, for example, or is it just this is earlobe cancer and that's really rare? Or <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah. So it can, um, there can be a couple of definitions. So it can be either a rare cell type that um, gets an aberration molecularly and becomes cancer, mm -hmm. or it can be a rare aberration in a common cell type and then it forms a, a, a strange pathology that we haven't seen. So it can be in a common location, but either from a rare cell type or has a rare pathology. So they're basically treated based on the location that they're identified in. 
and then often they don't respond to those treatments that right. they're given. Okay. Yeah. And how does the I guess the prognosis for this group of rare cancers, you said they're about a, I mean, it's about a third of deaths due to cancer. I mean, yeah. are they all somewhat deadly or is it, um, or is there a bit of a cross-section there like, like other cancers? Um, I think it's just that they don't, because we don't understand them and we haven't researched them, mm. they don't respond to the treatments we're giving them right. and we don't fully know the treatments we need to give them. Um, so that's why there's a, yeah, it's a disproportionate funding for them. So we're extremely lucky that we've been funded by the Stafford Fox Medical Research Foundation to begin our program that we have about 300 patients consented so far. And without this funding, this philanthropic funding, we wouldn't be able to develop this program and now develop research um, projects, which has enabled us to do a little bit of study, which has now led us to get more funding mm. from the Cancer Council Victoria and the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation. And now we are really studying these rare cancers further so we can find new treatments for yeah. them. Now, you're working closely with one of the clinicians and you've got these 300-odd patients. What, what exactly happens for those patients? I mean, what does it mean for them to be in the program? Um, so we will uh, have their tumours and we develop different clinical preclinical models so that we can test different drugs in the lab. Um, so they get um, treatments that um, we haven't we can't do for other ca rare cancers, and we'll uh, sequence the DNA in these tumours and look for molecular aberrations. So initially, we may find something straight away that there is a drug available for them in the clinic that may save their lives, and we have actually done that for a few of our patients oh, wow. where they yeah. wouldn't have received those treatments. Um, but then on the other hand, we're able to develop these preclinical models that other ca other patients haven't really had access to this before and we can study these um, tumours in the lab and see what they respond to and, and look at different combination therapies that then may help that individual patient if there's enough time or future patients with a similar uh, tumour type. Mm. It, it must be a special thrill for you as a, as a non-clinician researcher to actually see your work resulting in, as you say, saving some lives. Yeah, it's exactly what I, I love doing. I just love going to work each day. I'm very lucky to do this job. Um, I started out very basic biological research, which is also very useful, mm. and, and you need that knowledge now in this, in this job as well to understand how cancer is developing. But ultimately I wanted to be in very translational research where we could actually directly help the patients. So... Mm. Yeah, very lucky to do what I do. Yeah. Now, I, I suspect the obvious answer to this is just money, but you have 300 people in this particular group. Why Why not 500? Why not 1,000? Um, well, so we've only been up and running for about three years, and obviously there's not very many rare cancer patients um, to start with. So, you know, in Melbourne, uh, they have to hear about the program or they have to yeah. know Professor Claire Scott who runs the program. They have to know her or see her in the clinic and then now they know more clinicians within Melbourne will know about the program and know that they can consent these patients. So it's been an exponential growth since we started. We, you know, maybe we had about 50 patients in the first year and then 100 patients in the second year and then 200. So we're really growing and growing um, each year um, now that we're, um, being heard about and it's a now a national program so we are getting cases around Australia now um, mm. so it's just going to grow faster and faster now. Uh, are there similar programs internationally where where this sort of stuff is done? Yeah so there's the um, European um, Rare Cancer Association and um, 
But I, specifically with these uh, rare cancer programs matching treatments, there's um, one in America and you know, one in Europe, um, but actually doing the preclinical studies that we're doing in the lab, I'm not sure if there's other programs mm. exactly like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Look, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you and it's great talking to a cancer researcher who can actually talk about the patients they've saved. I mean, generally when I have these conversations, the words might, maybe sometime future, a long way off, don't ask me yet for the time yeah. frame, uh, comes into the conversation at some, some point. And, and as much as that research is really important and in 10 years or 20 years, we'll be thankful yeah. it's being done. It's often hard for people to connect with it because they're not seeing real people being affected. And, and there's just so many people doing that sort of research. It's hard to see, but, um, how does something like, you know, the new um, Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre um, factor into your work? Is that, is that a, a major, like, contributor to the success or is that you know, is it just one of many hospitals you work with? Uh, it's one of many hospitals, but it is the main hospital. So I'm over there pretty much every day. Right. Um, we have collaborations with everyone. That's where we um, sequence all of our tumours. Um, so, yeah, we... They, they have a big involvement in the program. Mm. Um, and I guess one thing I wanted to say with these rare cancers is that um, we are noticing that um, more of them have an aberration that can be targeted in the clinic, that there is a drug available. Um, so we're hoping overall that we just, we're proposing a paradigm shift of the way these rare cancers are treated as sequencing becomes more affordable. Yep. We can sequence earlier for the rare cancers because we actually do feel that we can benefit yeah. patients these cancers. Well, Holly, it's a delight speaking to you. Good luck with the work. I'm not going to keep you any longer because you have to go and save <laughs> lives, which is not something I get to say to, to many of our guests, but um, it's fabulous that you're doing that. Fabulous it's happening here in Melbourne and congratulations on the success of your work. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks so much, Holly. It's Dr. Holly Barker, who's a senior postdoc at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Folks, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with our final uh, guest for today in just a few moments. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R indeed. And we have now on the line uh, a PhD student, Dr. Uh, not quite Dr. Almost Dr. Eliza Colgrave. <laughs> She's from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Royal Women's Hospital. Eliza, welcome to the studio virtually. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you're working in an area that is, I think, fair to say, underfunded, underknown, underacknowledged as uh, a huge problem, which is endometriosis. So why don't we start, first of all, with a bit of an explanation of what this condition is and who it affects? Of course. So endometriosis, or endo, as we call, for those looking for less of a mouthful, is a disease where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus, also known as the endometrium, uh, grows outside the uterus, forming um, these lesions, which can cause all kinds of symptoms um, from pain uh, to uh, bloating, and some patients even have no symptoms at all. And it's a very common disease affecting at least 10% of women, uh, potentially more, but we don't know for sure as um, diagnosis rates aren't great, as you mentioned, mm. it's it's uh, not very well known of. Mm. And is something, I mean, I always think about the evolutionary origins of our body and why we end up having some of these errors. And in many cases, you find problems we have with the body are simply due to the fact that we never evolved to live this long. Um, when, when do you end up with endo? When, when do, do women get this? Is it something that's, you know, post 35, 40, or is it something you can have when you're 15? 
It's a tricky one to answer because obviously um, it's not diagnosed uh, very quickly. It takes on average seven to 10 years from symptom onset to actual diagnosis for a lot of women. Um, we tend to say it affects reproductive age women, so women that have had their first period, but there are um, a few rare cases where it, it has been found um, in even younger girls. So it's a bit of a perplexing disease in that regard. But the uh, actual cause of the disease is still not known either. The most commonly supported theory is this one called retrograde menstruation. So this happens in 90% of all women. And it's a process where during normal menstruation, instead of all the tissue coming out the vagina as normal, some of it actually flows back up through the fallopian tubes and out into the, the peritoneal cavity. Hmm. And we don't know what the difference is between women who do develop endometriosis and women who don't. And this theory doesn't explain all cases of endometriosis either. There's a lot of different theories around. Hmm. In terms of what the endometrial material does when it exits that area, I mean, what, what does it do? Why, why is it a problem? Well, in the women that develop endometriosis, this tissue somehow manages to implant onto the, the organs and um, cavity walls of the body and um, start to develop into these endometriotic lesions. And we don't know what the difference is between women who do that and don't, but it could be anything from um, differences in immune system function, so the body isn't effectively clearing that tissue out, or perhaps these patients have... Um, hyperactive inflammation responses and that somehow helps the tissue propagate and cause problems. There's a lot of different theories around um, that we're all still working on investigating. Mm. So this tissue kind of just sits there and, and grows there on, on different, like different organs, not part of the uterus, but just anywhere. Yeah, it can go anywhere basically that the bloodstream or the lymphatics can go. So there's been cases of endometriosis on the, um, the eye and in the thoracic cavity. It's, it's insane. Um, but mm. most commonly we find it in the pelvis. Right. And that's potentially a, a something to do with the way gravity works. Ah, yeah. Yeah, gravity is something I know about. Um, <laughs> now, your your PhD, tell us a bit about that. What are you working on specifically in this area? Because it sounds like um, there's, you know, a, a relatively small amount of research going on. Yeah, it, compared to a lot of other diseases, we're in quite early days with endometriosis research. Um, my project is specifically focused on these lesions we've been talking about, and I'm trying to characterise the different cell types and tissue types that make up these lesions to see if we can find any patterns or potentially disease subtypes because we don't know a lot about lesions and why some women respond well to some treatments and others not so much. So perhaps by looking at these lesions and um, the diversity of how they present themselves, we can learn a little bit more. Mm. And uh, I, I want to know how you go about that because I have some vague recollection in my brain because we always tend to go towards mouse models. But my understanding is there are very few mice or maybe only one type of mice that actually menstruates. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I don't know how I get this stuff stuck in my head. <laughs> Well, you might be thinking of the spiny mouse. That's yeah, a, quite yeah, a recent discovery. Yeah. It, it was a mouse that actually naturally menstruates. Mm. Um, and I think they're still looking at that mice and doing general characterization before they move into studies of things like um, menstrual disorders like endometriosis. Yep. But previously, um, there have been some attempts at using mouse models 
by um, in artificially implanting endometrial tissue around the different parts of the mouse's body. Right. Um, but, of course, that's not an accurate yeah. depiction necessarily of what goes on in the human body. So I'm focusing on human tissue in my study, um, and we're very lucky at the Royal Women's Hospital where, because we're based in a hospital, we have the opportunity to recruit women who come through for their surgery um, to either diagnose or to remove uh, endometriosis. And um, we've had nearly a 1,000 women agree to be part of our study. So wow. we have access to their, their uh, medical history as well as all their tissues, including um, their lesions. So the tissue I use is what's already been used by a pathologist to confirm that they do indeed have endometriosis. So they preserve the, the lesions um, in uh, formalin and um, so it becomes like a little block, which I um, slice up into thin sections. Mm -hmm. And I use these thin sections to... Oops, we're losing you a little bit there. Oh, ah, there um, we go. Lost you for a second there. Just I repeat back? that last couple of sentences. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. Um, so talking about the... We may have lost Liza there. Liza, if uh, if you're about, uh, I'll get you to dial back in. Are you there, Shane? Yeah, I can hear you. That might be better without uh, the video. Yeah, sorry, go I've, ahead. I've turned my video off. Oh, excellent. So you're <laughs> slicing, you're slicing, um, slicing things up. Yep, and then staining the tissue um, with antibodies for different cell types and tissue types. Um, or performing what's called a hematoxylin and eosin stain, which helps me visualise the tissue and observe just the basic general structure, hmm. so what the lesions look like in general. Yeah. Now, let's just go back for a moment to the diagnosis, diagnosis of this um, condition. You said that it can take, you know, seven-odd years or more to get a diagnosis, which is up there with some of the really difficult um, genetic diagnosis work that's done down at the Children's Hospital and so forth for, for rare diseases. Um, and this is not a rare disease. So what is the process of diagnosis? How do you actually confirm that someone has endo? So the, one of the reasons why it takes so long to diagnose endometriosis is the only sure way to currently do that is by surgically visualising the disease. Mm. So uh, the woman has to have a laparoscopy, so a keyhole surgery um, in the abdomen, and the surgeon has to actually see what he, th what he or she thinks uh, are lesions, remove them surgically, and then take them off to pathology to confirm that they are indeed lesions. Right. It sounds like a so pretty hard way reasons. to... It's, it's a pretty, you know, end-of-the-line diagnosis tool, isn't it? I mean, you have to go a fair way before you're ready to have surgery. Exactly. And it's so tricky because, um, you know, if we had a simple blood test, it would be so much mm. easier to just screen any teenage girl that comes through with period pain uh, and check if she does indeed have endometriosis yeah. or not. So a lot of research is focused on finding some kind of biomarker that can pick up endometriosis. And, and why can't I do something like an MRI? I mean, this is soft tissue material. Why, why can't I do an MRI scan and, and see these lesions with that? Unfortunately, medical imaging doesn't have the power currently to pick up quite what is quite subtle mm. um, changes in the tissue with the lesions. Using um, ultrasound, sometimes they can pick up quite severe disease. So yep. this is where... There's lesions everywhere and your organs are distorted or stuck together. Um, so I think it's quite common in a hospital for part of the diagnosis routine to involve 
an ultrasound before surgery just to check that the anatomy is as expected, but also to see if they potentially have quite a serious case on their hands yeah. so they can prepare accordingly. Yeah. Now, this is material coming from a part of the the female body that has so much going on in terms of hormones and various other chemicals. Does the these little bits of endomaterial um, sitting elsewhere in the body also excrete or uh, have involvement in, in all of that as well? Or are they, once they're separated out, they're kind of just in the way, sort of causing, how do they cause pain? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, so because the tissue is similar to the endometrium, which does undergo cyclic changes because of the hormones in the body, mm. you would think that lesions would be doing the same thing. And uh, research is suggesting that they are perhaps to an extent responsive to hormones, but um, not necessarily the same as what's going on in the endometrium. And in fact, some of them even produce their own hormones. They it's called an estrogen dependent disease because it produces its own estrogen, one of the, the female steroid hormones. Mm. Um, as for the pain side of things, uh, we're still not 100% sure how that pain mechanism works because um, it's quite complicated and involves the brain and the neural pathways um, and whether or not it's because the nerves are penetrating into the lesions and that's causing the pain or if it's more wider musculature um, activation around the lesion because of the mm. foreign body. There's lots of different theories being investigated. Good things. And, Eliza, just before I let you go, um, why is it that this disease is so under-researched and so recent in terms of the you know, effort going into it, given it affects such a large population? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons behind that. Um, firstly, obviously, because it's so difficult to diagnose in the first place. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the... Um, the historic approach um, to, to women with medicine. I'm sure you've heard of hysteria, yep. um, which is a, a diagnosis as recent as last century. Mm. Um, so quite often still women are told that their pain is, is all in their head because right. it's difficult to comprehend when you can't physically see um, a disease easily in a woman. Mm. So I think that's, that's not helping. And there's a big push to increase awareness of the disease so that at least it's something that's on a clinician's radar when they have a woman presenting with yeah. certain symptoms. And we've got a long way to go, but we're getting there. Absolutely. Well, Eliza, thanks so much for being our guest today. Great chatting to you. Um, this is an area that affects so many people, so I'm really pleased to be able to sort of do our little bit um, to promote awareness of it. Um, good luck with your research and your PhD, and um, hopefully we'll chat to you again sometime in the near future. Thanks so much, Shane. You're welcome. That was Eliza Colgrave. She is a PhD scholar at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Royal Women's Hospital. Folks, we are pretty much out of time. Thanks so much for listening to us today on Einstein and Gogo and Triple R. Until next week, uh, enjoy your week, stay safe, uh, stay home, and we'll give you more science in about a week's time. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.